0: Good morning. My name is John Herbst, and I am the director of the Dean patrotsky eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. We've got a wonderful program for you this morning. Uh, Doug Schoen, as you know, if you look at his biography, or if you're just politically literate, is one of the great pollsters political consultants uh, of our time. So I was delighted when Doug told us uh, months ago that he was writing a book on Putin's geopolitical strategy. Because uh, Doug is nothing if not an extremely persuasive advocate when he sets his mind to something. So he will lay out a very clear view of what Mr. Putin is up to. And with that, I will get out of the way and let Andrews Aslan and Doug pr- pr- provide you with the knowledge you need. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to stand up me to stand up? I, I can, I'm happy to stand up and do my introductory (laughs) remarks if if that makes sense. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll we'll try. Doug, the floor is yours. What is this book about? uh, I'd say the book is about what was not discussed in the debate and what is not being discussed at all uh, in a serious way in Washington and indeed... Um, in the election campaign. What do I mean? Look, as I thought about this talk, um, when I began, I I sort of said, gee, it's gonna come the day after the debate. Isn't that a little discouraging? And having watched the debate, uh, I was really encouraged that this was a perfect time to talk about the issues I raised in the book because of what wasn't discussed in the debate. There was nothing in the debate that I heard about, as John and Anders indicated, Russia's geopolitical strategy. Uh, There were a few comments by Donald Trump on uh, NATO. Uh, The Washington Post had a story this morning that Trump had become more supportive of NATO than he had been previously. Frankly, I didn't hear it. Uh, he may. I think the thrust of his remarks were that because he's been critical of NATO, they are more apt to meet their responsibilities and to cooperate on terror. But I did not hear a ringing endorsement of NATO. We did hear one from Secretary Clinton, but we didn't really hear anything else. We didn't hear anything about Syria, if I remember correctly. Nothing at all. So, and the reason I say this, and I said this to Anders and John uh, before we got started, as I watched the debate, my take was yes, Secretary Clinton was better than Donald Trump, but to me the real winner of the first debate was Vladimir Putin. And the reason I say that Vladimir Putin was the winner is the book argues pretty clearly that Putin has a geopolitical strategy to, as if I can read uh, from the cover of the book, I just wanna summarize as I did on the cover, destroy Europe, divide NATO, restore Russian power, uh, and global influence. And really what I was trying to do with that somewhat unwieldy uh, subtitle was make the argument that the Russians have a clear strategy. Look, Putin is weak at home. I would certainly be wrong and foolish to argue uh, that uh, given the economic uncertainty, the strikes, uh, the once again rigged Duma election with a very low turnout, it's hard to make the argument that Putin is strong, but I would, would further contend that because of his uh, weakness, it allows him and impels him to be more uh, expansionist as he goes forward. The idea that he was able to change for the first time the uh, borders of Europe since 1945, through his incursion into Ukraine, with almost no uh, reaction from the Americans, other than the sanctions, while harmful, and with the absence of any uh, defensive lethal weapons, to the Ukrainians is something I find hard to fathom. The fact that we allow red lines to be crossed in Syria and uh, Putin, if I remember correctly, went from the UN to a courtesy phone call to the US saying the bombs will be launched in an hour or so the next day (coughs) really speaks volumes to me, the fact that the Russians are upgrading systematically their defense and their nuclear arsenal. And if I uh, uh, remember correctly, we haven't upgraded our nuclear arsenal in 25 years and have been uh, cutting uh, defense. John Herb said something I absolutely agree. He said, we overextended ourselves uh, inappropriately uh, in the Bush administration and have not been as strong as we might and not been uh, aggressive as we might uh, subsequently. And I think John was absolutely right. One of the things we learn in politics, John, and it's because I am here and you are sitting here, you learn in politics to take that which is not your own and make it your own, but with John here and uh, uh, his event, it would be inappropriate or worse for me to... um, to do that, but he is exactly right in my judgment. What is so scary to me is given these multiplicity of, uh, of evidence of weakness combined with um, the ongoing collaboration between the Russians and the Chinese, which I uh, documented in my earlier book, The Russia-China Axis, it leaves me in a position where, as a political analyst who comes to these topics not as a regional specialist but as somebody who, for whom assessing political strategy and forming political strategy has been my life's work. But as I do this, I remain aghast that uh, other than people like Ash Carter, we the United States have no clear or coherent uh, response to what is going on. I I look at the rest of the world, and uh, again, I I, I would uh, perhaps look to others, but I have a sense that uh, it's it's a matter of time before Western Europe relaxes the sanctions on Russia simply because it will make economic sense to them unless they are put in a position where they uh, cannot Uh, cannot do that. Uh, Again, as I see it, there is no counterweight from the United States to um, what uh, the Russians and their allies, authoritarians, and the uh, uh, Chinese are doing around the world. It strikes me that um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership will fail in the Congress. It strikes me that that will undermine our position uh, in, <coughs> in Asia. And as I, as I look ar- you know, around Asia, you see uh, the, you know, the new president of the Philippines for a variety of reasons. Where does he end up against the United States? Uh, we've had our issues with the Turks. Um, they've had their rapprochement with the Russians uh, in the Middle East. Uh, As we sit here today, I don't think there is a strong, coherent, and consistent uh, alliance against the Iranians, indeed, if anything. My sense is that the United States is trying to be on both sides without uh, a great deal of success uh, uh, pursuing a bifurcated policy, and indeed, there's been something of a rapprochement on energy uh, issues and security issues between the Russians and the Saudis. Certainly nothing that is uh, definitive or long-term. But I I remember uh, about a year and a half ago being uh, in Jerusalem, and I saw Prime Minister Netanyahu. And as he was walking me out, he said, would you have ever imagined that I would be personally, and in a lot of ways politically, closer to the president of Egypt, the Saudis, than I am with the United States. And I think that was obviously more of a personal comment than a geopolitical comment in light of the substantial military cooperation between the uh, Israelis and the Americans that was announced, I guess, uh, last week. But on the other hand, it speaks to our isolation and the fact that traditional alliances and what we have traditionally counted as our only stable democratic ally in the Middle East. That has been frayed and we are in a world of uncertainty where I guess as I sit here I see a lot more concern and a lot more reason for uh, pessimism going forward than I do Uh, for optimism going forward. I would love to be proven wrong and nothing would um, please me more. And I was hoping uh, when I got the invitation that uh, part of today would be John and Anders telling me that I was wrong about pretty much (laughs) everything. And I was hoping that would be the case because I am not somebody obviously who roots for Vladimir Putin, or roots against the United States, or feel that the, feels that the world will be a better place with diminished American power. I think that the American ideal remains unique, distinctive, and as Madeleine Albright said, and has been quoted many times, it is indispensable. What I think we lack is an articulation of our ideals and our values, a strategy to counter Russian uh, and Chinese and autocratic Uh, uh, expansionism and initiatives by countries like North Korea and uh, uh, Iran, which have have shown the beginnings of cooperation on some of their missile programs. And I, I sit and I'm extremely worried. And as I look at American strategy or lack thereof, I don't have a clear idea on what it is and where we're heading. The reason I began with the debate, and I hope in the, uh, the foreign policy um, debate to come, that we get a clearer idea of where America is heading. But as we sit here today, I remain deeply, deeply concerned, pessimistic, and very much hope that I do not feel the need to write a third volume of the two volumes that I've already written. Let me stop there and... Uh, uh, ask Anders to uh, ask away.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Edward, come and sit down in the first row here. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Doug. What um, you did not say here, which I think I would like to add, uh, you have brought out here that. Uh, Russia really has, that Putin has a master plan, and but you can do a lot being weaker if you are clever and if uh, the enemy is not uh, uh, properly organized and, uh, and uh, doesn't, doesn't act. Um, and, uh, uh, What you did not talk much about here in the beginning, it is uh, the bulk of the book, five out of nine chapters, that is what does the Russian aggression amount to? What does the Russian hybrid war uh, amount to? And um, as I summarize, it's military action, as we've seen in Georgia, Ukraine, and Syria, espionage, of course, Uh, propaganda and cyber warfare, uh, support to rogue regimes and uh, terrorist energy policy and financial support to proxies uh, in Europe and now also to the U.S., we may presume. So this is uh, quite, a, um, quite a big uh, sure. uh, chunk, and what I think uh, to you in the audience, well, I can recommend this book, it has a clear thesis, it's well-written, it's well-documented, so this is a good read. And um, now Edward Lucas comes in very suitably. Edward, great intellectual, indeed. And, uh, and uh, you, uh, Edward, published his book *The New Cold War* in uh, 2008. And you have now published uh, two books about uh, the new cold war, properly <clears throat> referring uh, to uh, to Edward. So can you explain this? You sure. have written uh, at least a dozen books and at least 10 books about uh, American sure. po- po- politics. This is your real uh, area. And now you have written two hard-hitting books on one uh, Russian and Chinese foreign policy and this on Russian uh, foreign policy. Sure. How would you ex- uh, explain sure. your own intellectual development? Right. Why do you go in this direction? Sure.
1: Well, Uh, First of all, uh, uh, as Andres well knows, we have the same uh, academic training, the same institution. And I had...
2: St. Antilles College, Oxford. And
1: I had not really, uh, when I got there, had a sense as to what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. As my son Josh here knows, I had a... uh, He had a grandfather. I had a father who was very much inclined that I be a corporate lawyer, something I didn't want to do. And what I realized as a uh, what I guess they call a postgraduate student in England is there's a big world out there. And given the skills of analysis that I'd like to think I have, I think they're suitable to most regions and most areas of the world. Now, I began writing about race and immigration in Britain 40 years before Brexit, and that was my uh, thesis at Oxford. And I, I was pretty interested in that. Now, unfortunately uh, for me, um, this, the narrow pecuniary uh, interests of making a living and supporting oneself led me to become a uh, full-time political consultant. as you write, my principal but not only focus was the United States. But I have worked over the course of the last 30, 35 years for, I guess, 15 or 16 heads of state. And in that work, you find yourself assessing other people's strategic imperatives. And it led me to um, a really um, seven, eight years ago, uh, through some work that I think you're familiar with in Ukraine, to take up the issue of what Russia was up to. And I began with a a book on Russia and China. And I then decided that focusing on Putin from the perspective that I do, as you suggest as a political analyst, would be useful. It was clear. Like in the Baltics, it's pretty easy to see what Putin's strategy has been, as your comments uh, alluded to, Uh, whether they be in Georgia in 2008, Ukraine, I guess, a couple of years ago. It's the same basic strategy, Mm -hmm. uh, and it lends itself to the possibilities of an attack uh, or an incursion in some way in the Baltics. Will it happen? I don't know. But uh, it certainly is something that um, uh, is clear and reasonable. The other thing Anders, that seemed very clear to me is that Putin is somebody who you don't talk to. You show, provide demonstrable show, uh, shows of strength and power as a means of him. And it's looked to me, from my point of view, that the American approach, which is to stand back and then negotiate, negotiate, and negotiate, Uh, And as I like to say, either say, pretty please, or as Secretary of State says, is we don't have unlimited patience. But if you could show me some area where our patience has been limited, I'd love to see it. Uh, To me, what's happened in, I'm not clear I have a uh, better strategy than anybody else in Syria, but it's pretty hard to argue that the way we've handled that has Mm. been at all uh, logical. I have to believe that the Russian strategy also involves, you you summarized my argument very well, something else which um, uh, I I think is particularly (coughs) mendacious, which is you you alluded to uh, cooperation with rogue regimes. Obviously the Iranians and the Russians have been partners in both nuclear and non-nuclear business, and indeed the Russians have been Uh, allies and advocates uh, of the North Koreans as well, and certainly haven't done anything there to try to tamp down their nuclear program, and indeed last week issued a statement of uh, cooperation with the North uh, Koreans. But the other thing that, and again, I may be wrong, but I think that the collateral benefit from Russia of instability in Syria has been the refugee crisis, and the reason I say it's 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 to their benefit is all that the refugee crisis has done is to further destabilize um, uh, Europe and create chaos, and as the. European nations take different responses to the immigration crisis. As Mrs. Merkel now is perhaps rethinking her policies in the wake of the um, parliamentary, or I'm sorry, this, the state elections. Um, I, I sit there and say everything that's going on, um, Iranian violations, Iranian terror, uh, the North Koreans, refugees, works to the advantage of the Russians. And I see, as you suggested, a very clear strategy, Anders, on the Russians' part. I don't see us with a clear strategy. And just one final point on that. How lucky was Putin last night that in the face of pretty credible evidence that the Russians have had an extensive hacking program that Donald Trump Equated uh, alleged Russian hacking, which he said didn't occur, to a 400-pound man sitting on the edge of his bed. I mean, how do you get breaks like that? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of. Could you imagine a major party candidate, if there are any major parties left in Russia? <laughs> I don't think they are. There are standing up and saying, you know, the United States is good. I don't, I don't think they get too far, uh, but. You know, Trump, despite his um, poor showing last night, still has at least a thirty-five or forty percent chance of being our next president.
2: Yeah, uh, let me probe a little bit into this uh, new cold war. Uh, you have used it now in uh, two book titles, and uh, but is this really a new cold war? The cold war was very different. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a nuclear balance. Uh, it was. Um, the threat of tank war in uh, uh, Europe, uh, it was uh, uh, proxy wars in the, in the third world, uh, uh, yeah. so, so it was, uh, uh, you can say, uh, uh, quite different from what we are seeing now where disinformation uh, information is much more uh, prominent uh, and uh, various kinds of uh, inf- infiltration and myth of that was part of the old system. Cyber is completely new, we have drones and a sp- a special Forces and uh, in, in Ukraine we see a lot of very dubious uh, borders that uh, sure. and uh, bomb attempts but we don't know where they well, uh, they, they come from. Uh, do you, in the book you use the word hybrid war. Right. Uh, uh, should we use another term and ask to you afterwards, uh, Edward, on the same question? But no, I, 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 you know, I,
1: I'm curious Edward's reaction to this mm-hmm. because. My own take is that it's in potentially more dangerous mm. than the um than the Cold War because you had at least not aside from the bellicosity of rhetoric, you had two apparently rational actors mm. and I think of everything that's come out on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I say to myself, "Look, we figured out which letter to w- respond." to how to make a back channel deal to take the missiles out of Turkey to resolve what seemingly was going to be a global nuclear conflict. I look now, Anders, and to your question, I see so many ways that a conflict could break out. And indeed, going further than my book did, um, reading the comments, I guess it was last week, of Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, he's positing that the Russians and the North Koreans could use tactical nuclear weapons as part of their har- hybrid war. Now, obviously, hasn't happened yet. There's been some, I think, uh, isolated threats that that could, in fact, be employed. But it's quite a different thing in my mind when our Secretary of Defense acknowledges that there's a very real possibility that we could face... Um, nuclear conflict in a particular theater at a time when our nuclear arsenal, I don't think, has been upgraded in, what, 25 years, and our delivery systems in 25 years or more. So I I worry that this is a more dangerous set of conflicts, especially when we have politicians who, for a variety of reasons, have not addressed the threat in the way that i think uh necessarily it should be and uh i I just think in the cold war if there was too much focus on the possibility of conflict with russia there has not been enough focus and the last politician to focus on russia is now uh, on the sidelines Uh, that is former governor Mitt romney he was derided Four years ago, I haven't seen anyone write an article saying, and maybe I should write it.
2: Uh, Mint Romney was right. <laughs> Edward, could you comment on this? Do we have microphones or
3: I, do, I, I can shut. First of all, thank you very
2: much. And I, I, this is your book, not
1: mine. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I have only one gripe with you, is that each time you come out with a book, you're about a year ahead of me. But other than that, I have to say thank you. Intellectually, I have a debt to you. Thank you.
3: Well, I very that's very gracious of you. Um, I, I write a weekly column, and I think three weeks ago it opened with the lines, um, Mitt Romney was right.
1: Good. Um, <laughs> well, I apologize for missing
3: it. Um, but you're absolutely right on that. I think the point about mentioning the, the Cold War was was, in, in retrospect, seems much clearer than, uh, than it was, and I think we. Ha- it, it's a good idea to use it as a way of grabbing attention and saying, this is really dangerous, and we face a serious adversary. Um, a lot of the comparisons are quite tricky. It was very risky during the Cold War. We came quite close to uh, nuclear obliteration at various points, and... Um, although in Europe there was a kind of moral clarity to what's going on, it got a lot messier as you went further afield. So I think looking too much at the old Cold War as a source for understanding what's going on now is, is probably a mistake. I think that the, 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 the big difference is that Putin is able to attack us on so many fronts. That during the Cold War, for example, our financial system was almost hermetically sealed from Russia, there was very, very limited financial interaction between the Soviet Union and the West, and what there was was very carefully monitored. So the idea that you could have a, to take a hypothetical example, a major Russian oil trading company with very close links to the Kremlin, in fact an undisclosed beneficial ownership, so we don't know who owns it, and this hypothetical Russian oil trading company would be able to make billions of dollars <coughs> in, 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 in profit and have exceptionally close links with Western um, financial institutions and nobody would think that was that was wrong and to continue this hypothetical I stress hypothetical example because I don't want to go to jail um, that this, this hypothetical company would then defend itself very vigorously using Western um, the British law courts if anyone tried to poke too closely that would have seemed inconceivable. Well, actually it's not that inconceivable at all. Um, So we've got bankers and lawyers and accountants and PR people and think tanks and a whole range of institutions and people in the West who are at the core of our system who see absolutely nothing wrong in working for the Russians for money and that's something that he didn't, uh, that, that the Brezhnev could never have dreamed of. And I think in our discussion of hybrid war and all these other you know, the Kremlin toolkit that we talk about, the Kremlin has got all the old Soviet weapons and it's got a whole load of new ones and it has those because we let them use it.
2: Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I see a couple of hands to let me come in. Please hold in. <coughs> please.
4: Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council, and I'm a recovering Sovietologist, so forgive me. (laughs) Um, A couple of comments, and then I'll get to my questions. Uh, First, during the Cold War, we thought the Russians or the Soviets were 10 feet tall. It turned out that they were about 5 foot 6, and their vital organs were not developed. (laughs) And our understanding with the US government, not individuals, was awful. We didn't realize Khrushchev was on the way out. We didn't understand what Gorbachev was doing. So our understanding was bad. We're spending more money on defense right now than we did at the height of the Reagan buildup, something to remember. And believe it or not, our nuclear systems are far better than you allege. Yeah, we got to replace them, but that's not the issue. They have been modernized, and in fact, the Russians are very concerned about them. One of the reasons why the Russians have maintained a numerical advantage in theater weapons is because they've adopted the kind of Eisenhower strategy because they see our conventional forces overwhelming. So I think we need better understanding about your arguments. I couldn't agree with you more that our side has been ludicrous. I mean, go back for the last three presidents and the absence of strategy is absolutely correct. We've been really very bad. But I don't think that same argument can apply to Mr. Putin. I mean, if you had been in Mr. Putin's position, seeing all the things that the West have done, would you have acted any differently? And so I think from his side, there's been a rationale as to what he's doing. On our side, there's been a failure to comprehend. Now, the number one mission, believe it or not, of the Pentagon under Ash Carter, and I thought his testimony with Joe Dunford the other day was really quite frightening. Um, Number one priority is to deter and, if necessary, defeat Russia in a war. Could you give us your views of what it takes to deter and, if necessary, defeating Russia in a war that could be nuclear?
1: You know, I'm not uh, expert enough to be able to answer that question. So I'm not going to try and I'm not going to... take that part of your question or comment on. What I will suggest is on your second point about Putin. Oh, I get it. I think you're absolutely right. I I get his logic. His point was I was ready to cooperate with you Americans after 9-11 on terror. You didn't do it. You went off on your own. And you have all these uh, NGOs and think tanks that you set up as quasi-independent entities in Russia. All they were designed to do is destabilize me. And if you only need, look at the 2011 parliamentary elections to see the logical culmination of uh, what uh, your strategy was designed to do, which was to undermine me. Now, what worries me about that, returning to the here and now and answering a question that I do believe I think I can uh, speak to, is that I believe he feels he is on morally, practically, and ethically the right side to undermine our elections any way he can. So, I, you know, my guess is that he is hacked everywhere and anywhere uh, he can, that he's been cooperating in one form or another with, obviously, uh, Mr. Snowden, but also Mr. Assange. And I don't put it past them to try to destabilize individual uh, state or r- local election counting facilities to achieve some nefarious purpose. Uh, Am I sympathetic to that argument? Of course I'm not. Do I understand it? Yes, I do. Because we have another problem in this election, which probably touches on your third point, the one that I uh, demurred on answering. And that is to defeat Russia in any sort of serious conflict, we need a national consensus. I am not sure we are going to elect a president who has credibility or um, a national consensus behind him or her. I think if the Secretary of State's elected, the Republicans may push for impeachment or indictment right away. And I think if uh, Donald Trump is elected, the Democratic reaction could be, even more extreme. The reason I cite that is how do we fight a war, any war, if we can't create a sense of legitimacy about our leaders, our Congress, and our government? And I'm pleased you agree that uh, my focus on the absence of strategy is right, but I don't have any clear sense that we're going to develop or enhance a strategy going forward. And let's assume that, as Ash Carter suggested, we face a serious regional conflict, whether it be in Asia or the Baltics or throughout the Middle East. Um, I I don't know how we achieve even the kind of consensus we had after 9-11, much less during the Cold War or even in the beginning days of Vietnam. I I don't see it. So I, I, I greatly worry and I would I would ask you the same question you asked me. How do we do it? Like an answer? Sure. <laughs> I would welcome it.
4: First thing is we have underplayed NATO, this administration. We had we had several opportunities at, at Wales and then at the last summit um, in Warsaw. We've not been able to get NATO on board. And the simple solution is what I have been calling for a long time a porcupine strategy. There is nothing new about hybrid warfare. Lenin tried it in 24 against Estonia, didn't work. And by a porcupine defense, we don't need to have brigade combat teams. I mean, I realize that they are reinforcing reassurance. But by giving or selling to both the flanks, lots of stinger-like weapons, javelin-like weapons and having NATO provide the capacity to deal with intimidation, cyber, all these other things that are so-called part of hybrid warfare, we could do this. I've been on the advisory board for SACUR since 2003 and we have been enormously frustrating at Wales and elsewhere that we could not move the alliance forward. General Breedlove unfortunately has been maligned the reason we have many of the plans that we do was because that Phil pushed them through, against very much the uh, inertia at NATO. So the thing that we should have done was taking the lead in NATO. It's not a question of spending more money; it's a question of spending money much more wisely. Just for information, the Russian flagship in the Mediterranean is probably as old as you are. When I was I'm in the old. navy, I understand that. When I was in the navy a hundred years ago, I remember trailing that ship around the North Sea. So. We overestimate the degree of of Russian capacity, but Putin has been brilliant. He's put in a a minimum force in Syria compared to hundreds of thousands of Americans in in Iraq and in Afghanistan. He flew his cruise missiles out of the Caspian Sea, the caliber. Most of them never hit within miles of whatever. He then launched some strikes from uh, Iran. This is brilliant PR, and we're just not able to match it. And I think that the problem, and I could not agree with you more, is that it's the lack of what we've been doing strategically, and I agree with you that no matter who's elected, that the situation is probably not gonna get better. But I don't think that I would need to worry so much about Putin's active aggression uh, physically into the Baltics or into the, um, the Black Sea is as severe. I think that he's far more clever than that. And having just come back from Moscow, I think the Russians understand that their conventional forces are not nearly as strong as we believe. 90% of their population is not eligible for military service, on and on and on. They've got small units. Their spets nuts is very, very, very good. But one of the reasons they're really relying on nuclear weapons is because they argue, we've spent trillions of dollars on defense. We have far better systems than they do. That scares them. The answer, we need partnerships to deal with Russia. We need the equivalent of a Nixon doctrine to be able to outflank them. But there's not any imagination in this particular administration, nor in the last, and I don't see it, heaven forbid, with a Trump administration or a Hillary administration. But that's what needs to be done, and I'm afraid it's not going to be done.
2: Thank you. Let me just uh, summarize a couple of points here. What uh, seems to be coming uh, very clear after Putin's war in Syria, it is that he's highly rational and what, uh, so the idea that this, uh, this is a madman that we need to be tra- uh, take um, treat uh, cautiously that idea has completely disappeared which is good it is, uh, which is certainly one of the core arguments of this book intellectual clarity and the other which i think comes out very strongly it is this is a strategy it's uh, often said that putin is uh, a tactician and not a strategist and that the point i think that you proved very well. But over to the American politics, you both have said Esh Carter is good. I think that's a very widely held view in this town among people who deal with Russia. Obama doesn't come out quite as well for the reasons that you put very strongly in the book. Trump, for some reason, I presume, out of, because of time, doesn't really figure in the book. But that is, of course, as it's clear from this discussion, a very worst point. I think that you're a bit harsh on Hillary Clinton. But she's, um, I would argue, closer to Ash Carter than to uh, uh, President Obama in the actual policy uh, positions that she had to take as a Secretary of State. What yeah, do you and, think,
1: Van? And and you know, I, I think that's <coughs> right. The having worked with Secretary Clinton, I have no doubt about the quality of her intellectual judgment. It was on display last night. What I do not believe about her is that she is a strategist. She is very good at dealing with the here and now. She's not very good at thinking three or four steps ahead. So if you ask me, who's mm. a better strategist, Putin or Hillary, it's to me, and I mean no disrespect to the Secretary of State, it's Vladimir Putin. And what I, I guess the question that I would ask, is it not possible, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, and please tell me if I am, that at some point in the, immediate, in the period, either right before or more likely, after the election. Is there the possibility that Putin might decide to test um, the Baltics to an incursion uh, to protect the Russian-speaking population in Estonia? Mm -hmm. Just to see what the American response is or what NATO's response is, if at all. Because my question as I wrote this book, and I don't have an answer to this one either, is how good will the rapid reaction force bill be? Didn't seem to me too good. And I was wondering if there were low grade incursions in the Baltics, whether there would be any Western response at all. And my instinct was no, but I I, I frankly uh, had that as a big question mark. Can I have
4: one, just one sentence?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm give
4: you more diabolical
1: scenario. Please. He
4: tries to have some kind of rapprochement far more destructive to the American side.
1: It, 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 well, it looks to me now, and again, I would defer to Anders, that he has been more willing now to make peace in Ukraine than in the Ukrainians. Is that a fair statement, or am I wrong?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it would be very dangerous for Ukraine to get Donbass back uh, today. Lots of people are d- dead against Ukraine as a state. It will completely change the political situation. Uh, Donbas is massively destroyed. Who would like to fight for Detroit? That is uh, really what it is up to. This is the worst rust belt uh, of Ukraine, and uh, therefore, there are not very many Ukrainians who are very interested in getting uh, Donbass back. Uh, the right uh, right now. yeah that's
1: that's what i was that's what i was alluding mm-hmm. to and i think i think that's where he's going to head. he's going to say look i'm ready to cooperate all the way why are there still sanctions i can work with you and by the way the point that uh, i think you and ed lucas made is there are enough people who do business with the russians in one form or another to occasion the response of enough is enough let 's get back to business and stop
2: this I have lots of hands so I'll, I will take you first time for everybody uh, uh 2 Institute uh, former advi- uh, economic advisor to president Putin
5: okay uh, thank you Anders uh, just a couple of comments and one question um, uh, comments continue the Edwards line uh, about the Uh, commonality and differences between uh, Cold War and hybrid war. In addition to this almost isolation in financial uh, markets, financial area of the West, there was also that time um, very substantial isolation uh, in energy markets that does not exist anymore, information space and especially political world, that we can see even in this presidential campaign in the United States, not even talking about Europe, which makes very substantial difference for this particular war. And uh, here, as I understand, uh, you are talking not only about the existence of long-term strategy of Mr. Putin, but the absence of long-term strategy on the other side, and not only absence of long-term strategy, but absence of even coherent defense, even in these particular areas, yes. And this is my question. What is the, from your point of view, what is the most core root of this problem? Is it a personality problem of the current administration and probably might be next uh, administration, depending who will win or maybe both of candidates? Is it a generational problem It's a generation of people who did not see real war compared to Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, Truman, and others. Or it's a structure problem, problem of structure of political system here in European countries that it is so hard to produce and implement and sustain for a long period of time, coherent strategy, either in attack or in at least even in defense.
2: Sorry, I think very to good. summarize, why are we so useless? Yes. <laughs> I think it's
1: structure, strategy, and leadership, or absence of leadership. I think the structure of our alliances are getting uh, frayed. We do, as we've been saying, we lack a strategy. And we really don't have a consensus as a nation about who we are and what we need to do. And the other thing that I would say, if I can return to um, politics for a second, um, I've spent 30 or 40 years assessing, working with, and watching both our politics and the politics around the world, and certainly with a focus on Europe. The quality of our leadership, and I'm not, I am somebody who's been a Democrat, but please do not take this as a partisan comment. The quality of our leadership is just rotten. Um, I, I say this is somebody who's made his living advising people, and the reason I say it's rotten, the number of solid strategic thinkers in elective office is so minimal because all that our system really encourages is political strategy to get elected, tactical initiatives to raise money, And the strength of the parties now is such that individual representatives are really much more, in our system, careerist. Given the level of anger and frustration that exists, we've elected cadres here and now in Europe who have no background, no experience, and they would have no idea what strategy is. I mean, when you have clowns leading political parties uh, in Italy, And you have, uh, you know, the return of the extreme right uh, in Germany. You have, the I asked a French advisor what degree of the French population supports the establishment such as it is. He said about 10%. Um, You have about 10% that think the American Congress here is doing a good job. So combination of disillusion, less than an ideal political class, a lack of strategy, and a lack of leadership. And what Anders, quite rightly summarizing my argument to say, is that a clear strategy from the Russians, which they've implemented with a relatively weak hand, pretty darn well. There's one other thing they do better than we do, which is information. Um, whether it be black PR, compromat, or just plain communication, or, and maybe even just lying, The Russians are light years ahead of us. I mean, I've spent enough time watching Dmitry Peskov and watching our folks. And uh, while I'm not going to want to embrace Dmitry Peskov uh, for the substance, and I'm not going to put Dmitry Kisilov in our next debate, I would tell you as communicators, they are light years ahead of anything we can do and have done. I say this with the degree of sadness and disappointment, but they run rings around us. And Mm -hmm. just to my way of thinking, um, a problem that I have no great answer to, but I see it every day. And I just shake my head that the Russians are able to take bad situations and make compelling arguments. And we have winning situations and we flub them.
2: It might come as a surprise to many, but Washington is not sufficiently good at lying. Please, you have had your up, hand up for a long time.
6: Herb Rose. Um, I watched the incursions of uh, Russian aircraft into uh, the airspace of the Scandinavian countries and other countries in the Baltics. Um, and. No one took any action except perhaps a few protests um, until Turkey actually shot down Russian aircraft after numerous incursions into Turkish airspace. Um, At the time, uh, there was a great deal of tension between Turkey and Russia. Uh, Now there seems to be uh, much less tension than exists between Turkey and the United States. Uh, Turkey and Russia seem to be bosom buddies. Question is, if someone else took a similar action, what might be the result? Uh, Realizing that uh, the relationships uh, between the countries are very different depending on who you're talking about, but what might be the result of a similar situation?
1: Well, again, and and I'll defer to others, because I have not spent perhaps as much time on uh, Russo-Turkish relations, as I might. But it looked to me, (laughs) after the Russian plane was shot down, Erdogan tried to um, approach Putin. And Putin's attitude is, we're not talking. We're going to limit our diplomatic uh, contact, tell our tourists not to uh, come, limit our economic uh, dealings. And it struck me that the Russians were very, very clear that this was not going to pass lightly and whatever the geopolitical issues were with uh, the Syrian Kurds, the Kurds in the southeast, the Russians and strategy in um, Syria, which probably go by beyond my competence to fully analyze. What I took from this was the Russians had a certain strategy they and a, a certain set of punitive steps they took that produced the rapprochement you speak of. And I had the same reaction uh, in the Scandinavian countries and the Baltics, which is the Russians will keep pushing until there's some pushback. And I guess as I sit here, um, I analyzed and assess things exactly as you did. And I, I guess I asked myself the same question effectively you're asking me without a good answer. So I would ask you, Anders, what is it that... The Russians have done that I uh, either haven't seen or um, uh, have missed that has produced a situation where seemingly uh, intractable foes were now on better terms than the U.S. and Turkey when I figured we would be the net beneficiary and, in fact, were charged with fomenting a coup that we probably didn't have much to do with.
2: Well, I wouldn't uh, look at, upon such situations, but I'm seeing, uh, as a Swede, I see that uh, uh, the uh, Scandinavians and the Balts are very much mobilizing against Russia. And uh, in particular, Latvia and Lithuania are massively increasing defense expenditure. Also, um, Finland, the mm-hmm. Sweden less so as yet, but uh, Sweden is, on the contrary, rushing as fast as it can towards NATO, Finland slightly uh, slower, So, Northern Europe is very much mobilizing against Russia. And um, uh, of course, uh, uh, Putin has uh, formed the Ukrainian nation uh, through his aggression. Paul. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Thank you. Um,
7: Paul Joyle, NSI. I'd like to um, uh, briefly respond to Holland's um, interpretation of uh, Ash Carter's. dangerous uh, testimony. Ash Carter was was referring to what's necessary from the United States military standpoint to address certain deficiencies in the combined arms situation that Russia has developed. Not not, uh, hybrid warfare, but combined arms. Namely, for 15 years, we've concentrated on coin operations. They have developed now long-range artillery, they're using coordinated cluster bomb with UAV activity in, in, in the Ukraine. They have reconfigured their combat uh, brigades to include combined arms of air defense, armor, and airborne and Spetsnaz with, with actually even volunteers. So, the pro- and, and probably even more troubling is electronic warfare, the ability to take away our net-centric warfare advantages in the battlefield. And they have developed a whole range of activities in this, including EMP weapons, et cetera, that uh, we have to address. So I think that Ash Carter and and the Defense Department is moving absolutely in the right direction uh, to address what could happen if something goes wrong and, and swords are crossed with NATO and Russia. We have to have a response to these present dangers and threats that the Russian military provides, even though it may be much weaker than us at the initial, uh, if, if something occurs initially, it could put us in a very, very psychologically weak position on the battlefield.
1: I, I mean, I think, I think that's the real problem. And the question that I ask to your point is, will, will such a conflict necessarily go beyond the initial, Phases, or would we effectively, through NATO or on our own, acquiesce or sue for peace, or not respond fully to these sort of limited uh, incursions that are probably more likely than full-out war? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, American troops being killed
7: in a, in, in a, uh, in a combat situation—it's not going to
1: be sued for peace. Well, with all due respect, we've lost a few, a few thousand troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and I don't interpret our response as anything other than sue for peace and right now in Iraq and again I could be wrong there are probably more than 5,000 uh, uh, troops there Obama keeps denying we have troops we couldn't leave a, uh, we couldn't do a status of forces agreement to leave 10,000 troops there we're getting pretty close to that all the while denying that we have troops so I I must tell you I would love to be proven absolutely wrong in any such conflict in the United States to step up, but I haven't seen the evidence on the ground to lead me to believe that uh, you are 100% right. I can understand on the
7: advisor front that if we have an American military brigade operating and, and, and engagement occurs, that's a whole different situation.
1: You know, I just think it's gonna be a little bit more complicated than that in the real world um, that we live in. And again, I hope, I, I, I would hope I would be proven wrong, but I have not seen evidence to suggest that we will be uh, as aggressive and forthright as uh, I would hope we would be in your hope comment. The, yeah. best,
2: I would yeah. agree with that. Please, Robert. Please, ma'am. Yeah. For you, yes.
0: John, John Kunstadter, Zima hey, photo. Yeah. Uh, a, a brief comment and then a three part question. Um, the problem with Putin started 20 years ago uh, before he was known, and that in 1995, the then Russian Foreign Minister Kozarev, when he made his comments about defending the rights of compatriots in Estonia, there was silence when in the same year the Russians started to uh, violate the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, silence. So uh, one thing uh, that in dealing with Moscow I think we need to take account of is that Moscow thinks about what it sees over time. And uh, Putin in a way was building on the unfortunate momentum that we let be created by our silence well before he came into power. Uh, The three-part question would be, uh, do you see any sign that we take counterintelligence, and by that I don't mean uh, signals counterintelligence, but human counterintelligence seriously in this country? No. All right, number two. (laughs) uh, How many Americans without relatives in the countries I'm uh, uh, about to mention, speak fluent, and I don't mean Foreign Service Institute 3 3 or 4 4. I mean fluent Russian, Ukrainian, Farsi, Turkish, uh, Gulf Arabic, Levant Arabic. Not many. Thank you. <laughs> the third uh, question is, and uh, I, I think there will be nobody else in this room who appreciates what I'm going to ask. Uh, in fact, it will rub everyone the wrong way. But how are we going to how are we going to uh, deter someone like Putin? Uh, let's not look at his hypocrisy, uh, but how, how are we going to deter him when to use a single word, we have Rotherham, sorry, Edward, or cologne. Uh, when we when in the West, and I'm sorry, I'm rubbing everyone the wrong way, I'm sure. But when men will not defend women, how do, how do you expect uh, someone like Putin, let alone the uh, Muslim world, to think that, it, uh, that there will be any uh, difficulty in rolling over us? Thank you.
2: Not quite sure how to respond to the third okay. question. Yeah, let me elaborate a little bit on the second question. I'm an adjunct professor at uh, Georgetown School for Foreign Service uh, as the Center for uh, uh, East European, Russian, and Eurasian uh, Studies for a long time. And uh, what is happening generally at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, which is quite typical of international studies generally, it is that you study international studies in general. Without learning the languages. Uh, to study languages is considered uh, not very profitable for an academic career or for a professional uh, career. So there are fewer and fewer who study foreign languages. Uh, and uh, I had expected that there would be a boom, thanks to Putin, but uh, uh, he hasn't managed to bring that about. Uh, I mean, a boom in the, Russian studies, just to undermine, uh, underline your your second point. I have two people there. Uh, the lady first.
8: Thank you. I'm Dana Priest from The Washington Post.
2: Oh.
0: <laughs> uh, my question is, we've um, obviously been writing about the, the influence campaign here in the United States. And I wanted to know if you had found in doing your research um, going sort of back to the title of Master Plan,
1: right.
0: if you can talk about anything you found that we, we haven't already,
1: sure. well, desired, let me, let me not let me already you, out there. Let me give you a, a sort of simple and straightforward answer to your question from a personal point of view, but that touches on your question, which is what's going on that we don't see every day that is hugely important and um, influential. The Russian effort to use trolls to go after everyone who criticizes the Kremlin, Putin, uh, or any aspect of Russian policy is so substantial that um, it amazes me the degree of sophistication. I mean, it's been done to me and my books repeatedly. I've done radio interviews. It's one one in the morning, I'm barely awake, and some, I'm, you know, I'm a Russian scholar in Boston, bam, an attack on me. And what strikes me about this, and when you read blog posts and comments, the Russians are organized systematically to attack everywhere. My point is not that I'm all that important, obviously, in the scheme of things, I'm not. But the fact that. I'm attacked, I'm criticized, and everyone else who does what I am trying to do faces a similar organized attack combined with a superior Russian information campaign uh, says to me that we are being out-argued, out-organized, probably out-cyber-attacked, and almost certainly out-trolled.
2: Yeah, and I think that you should add here to what Edward talked about before, the finances, uh, that uh, now, I mean, we have a case in point. Uh, we have no idea what finances uh, uh, Donald Trump has. And he's uh, refusing it at, uh, last night uh, on the, in the debate, he said, oh, we don't uh, know that uh, these uh, hackers were actually Russian when we have p- pretty good evidence of it. So uh, uh, I think that b- b- that combination is really quite scary. Sorry, you have been waiting for long. <clears throat> uh,
9: Henry Karpinski. Um, I have a question. Uh, we always say Putin's plan, Putin master plan. In your own opinion, do you think it's actually a person, Putin, a group behind him, or it's actually a natural state of... Uh, Russian government to deliver its interest on the uh, tip of a sword.
1: I guess I would say we have a head of state with a plan, a strategy, who has managed uh, over many years to have a leadership cadre around him which periodically gets shuffled and there is a clear national state and national interest given the opinion <coughs> that suggests a consensus behind what Mr. Putin is doing uh, at the same time that there are certainly concerns about the economy and economic leadership. But it strikes me the Russians have a clearer idea of where they're going and what they're doing and their leader than we do. So can I, just
3: brief intervention? Sure. I, I think that's a mistake. With okay. A state. Sure. I think that um sorry I think that these problems predated Putin and they will continue after he's gone if you I mean this re- was you, a
1: question was- about Putin now in the yeah. Russian state. So yeah, I no, was...
3: it's, a, it's a mistake to focus. I mean, Putin, I think, is a symptom rather than the actual instigator of this. And if you look at Lennart Meri's speech from um, in Hamburg in 1994, he was the then Estonian president. He forecast with extraordinary prescience all the problems we have now at a time when we still thought everything was fine under Yeltsin, both the slide to dictatorship and autocracy at home and the um, the unburied KGB state, and the imperialist um, unresolved issues to do with the neighbors. So I think that actually if we listen to the people who know Russia best, which is the neighbors, they were warning us about this in the early 90s, and we just didn't listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, please.
10: Mariusz Lorinaychus, Hudson Institute. Um, one quick comment, and... Uh, my question, first of all, I couldn't agree more with uh, Ed about uh, Putin. It's, it's not about Putin, it's about system. And uh, everything started much, much earlier than Putin came to power. Um, but my, m- I'm from Lithuania myself, and uh, Baltic states have been mentioned several times here. So my comment would be uh, that uh, right now uh, a threat to Baltic states are slightly diminished. And I might surprise you just being from Lithuania and uh, have been writing about the uh, threat of conventional threat uh, uh, to to the Baltic states uh, for for, for several years already. But I see it as, as you put it, uh, as a grand strategy, a master plan. And now everything else plays in their hands. They have Brexit. They might have Trump. They might have Merkel gone. Uh, the coup in Turkey plays in their hands. Syria as well. So they're just focused on the broader uh, picture than the Baltic states. And Baltic, to do something in the Baltic states right now would go against their interest. It's not just uh, the threat diminished already, but, but it's right now, it's, it's diminishing. But at the same time, the uh, threat to our Western society, Western alliance, increases dramatically. Because, uh, because of everything I said already, it's, in, it's not because Russia is uh, doing something. It, it's our own problems. But they are uh, very good at manipulating everything, uh, all the problems we have. So my, uh, my question would be because, Uh, just going back to the uh, subtitle of your book uh, uh, Destroying Europe uh, uh, Undermining NATO and all the other how could we uh, start here from uh, just uh, getting this knowledge of this master plan because I don't see many people here in DC and and in the west as, as a whole just understanding that they have this master plan How, because you are a a political uh, advisor as well, not not only a political analyst, Mm -hmm. how can you see the possibility to to get this message that uh, we are?
1: The reason I wrote the book is because it struck me that, again, while there are lots of people who are specialists in the region, know more about uh, Russia than I do, but it was clear there is a strategy, clear that, as Anders said, a rational plan. And the reason why I focus on the Baltics is not because I think Putin wants or expects or anticipates uh, a struggle there. But it strikes me, just from a strategic point of view, the best way to undermine the West is and its low cost. You know, there's an aggrieved Russian population <clears throat> somewhere. A few green men come in, there's some conflict, NATO doesn't quite know what to do, the incoming American president and the outgoing American president aren't sure. What better low-cost advertisement is there for the impotence and disorganization of the West than that? Now, of course I could be wrong, there's no, uh, any, no assurances that anything like that will happen, but it's certainly, uh, when you think risk-reward, Um, a lot lower cost deal than going into Ukraine.
2: Yeah, uh, George uh, Chopevsky.
8: I'd like to put you on the spot here, if I may.
1: I think I've been on the spot. (laughs) (laughs)
8: Um, Could you draw for us a uh, what-if scenario? What if um, Donald Trump gets elected? And given uh, kind of his relations and the, his surrounding advisors, uh, Flynn, Manafort, uh, Page, etc and given his statements uh, that have been sort of friendly toward uh, Russia and Putin, um, if he's elected, how do you see American um, foreign policy unfolding Um, how intimately will it be coordinated with the Kremlin? Uh, Will it be tied into the master plan? And uh, what do you see um, other thinkers in the executive uh, and legislative branches, um, uh, how do you see them reacting to what his policies might be?
1: Well, what you are suggesting, first of all, I, a,
8: I'm sorry if I'm suggesting something. I don't mean no, to suggest because I want to hear you. you say. I'm, I'm, I'm,
1: making, I'm going to make light before I answer or attempt to answer your question. But I was going to say what you're really suggesting as an entrepreneurial fellow, assuming that what you describe happens on November 8th, <laughs> I should take pen to paper on the 9th and write a quickie book on Trump, Russia, what it means, what's going to happen, and where we stand. And for those of you who'd like that book, we'll be gathering here in early January (laughs) before the inauguration to, to discuss. You know, the simple answer, though, to your question is, I don't really know. And I'd like to think that there would be advisors around Trump who would seek to underscore for him the importance of maintaining the integrity of the NATO alliance. But given his comments last night, his comments on the campaign trail, it's hard to know what he's going to do. The other thing that the Russians, again, are much better at than we are is that they have been playing Trump like a fiddle. He has such a thin skin and weak ego that each and every compliment that Trump uh, gets from Putin is greeted with a similar compliment. And obviously, Putin is a lot better and the Russians at, uh, you know, um, characterizing and analyzing personalities than I am. But knowing Trump and knowing the way he thinks, it's clear they have a tactical and again strategic reason for handling him and responding the way he he has. Anders is right. We don't really know what his underlying economic ties to the Russians are but he has given up indeed abrogated every opportunity to equivocate last night he could have said look I'm not sure it's Russian hacking it could be he said I don't think it is I don't know what evidence he has but why would he say that when it is clearly not in his interest to do that so I don't know the answer to that with most politicians, take, say, Secretary Clinton. She is somebody who always relies on her advisors. The idea that she would go off unilaterally, uh, that's not how she thinks, not how she makes policy, not how she works. The problem with employing, employing uh, that model for Trump is everything I know about and have watched and, and observed and based on my own dealings with him in private business he prides himself on making his own decisions. He doesn't want information from others. He's, you know, you could see last night, he didn't exactly have a profusion of facts at his disposal. So I would say you ask a very good question that I don't have a good answer for and I don't think anybody has a good answer for. Maybe you do. Please. Kind of
8: the second half of my question. Sure. Let's just assume that uh, for discussion purposes that uh, the scenario turns out uh, um, maybe the way most of us would not like it to turn out in terms of foreign policy that that becomes uh, established after the election. And that it becomes actually, and I'll maybe overstate the case, but I think it could become a threat to the republic. I think it could be a threat to the republic, to the United States, to the West in general. Well, do you see? Do you see a scenario where it could be um, uh, 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 bridled by uh, by the legislature and other people, lower-level people in the executive, to stop an out-of-control foreign policy?
1: Right. He, he, here's how I would answer. I think Trump is going to be more responsive to public opinion than he is to low-level or mid-level bureaucrats. And what I mean is, for example, if there's some uh, terrorist attack uh, in the Middle East where, say, Americans are killed, um, I think this gentleman is exactly right. Donald Trump is much more likely to say, I won't take this, and to begin some sort of um, retaliatory... Um, initiative in that way. In terms of Russia, I, you know, I just, I don't know. And I, I, I don't have a sense, other than General Flynn, that there's anybody in his day-to-day circle who would offer a contrary view. I asked John Bolton, who wrote a piece that some of you may have read about two, three weeks ago in the journal. I asked whether he talks to Trump. He said not at all. That may have changed since the peace, but um, he would have been somebody that I think logically Donald Trump would talk to. But if you hear Trump himself, he says, why would I want to talk to people who've been involved in what I consider a failed foreign policy? The reason I say all that is I just don't have a good way or a clear way to answer your question.
2: I worry too, by the way.
8: It's pretty frightening.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, Yes, Okay. one last question.
9: Thank you. So basically, I think it's been clear that you think both administration most likely will not be able to do what's needed. It's clear for everybody in the room that there is threat and it's there. Do you think we're able to build something based on current institution that could still oppose the threat disregarding what administration going to decide? Can we build the mechanism that will be able to confront Putin or any other nation with a hybrid approach to the aggression uh, independently from the changes in the political society? I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you.
2: Let me then add uh, a last question. Sure. Uh, outside of the topic, uh, what do you think will happen on the 8th of November? Okay,
1: well, look, I, I, um, I watched that debate. Uh, I'm one of those who has, in the distant past, worked with Secretary Clinton, much more with Bill Clinton, but both of them prepare very, very carefully. I thought she was well-prepared. I thought she was focused. And I thought she won the debate. What I don't think she necessarily did was to knock Trump out. Because there's so much anger in the electorate. And I thought Trump did well enough on trade. And Secretary Clinton, at a a certain point in time, there were dizzying amounts of facts to the point where I I sort of said to myself, basta, you've gotten an A you know, the grades are in. So, I say all that, the, the overnight polls have been anywhere from 60 to 25 to 52 to 40 for Hillary. I'm not sure the underlying uh, national and swing state poll numbers will change all that much, but there has been a steady climb in Trump's numbers and a decline in Hillary's. I think, at the very least, That will level off, and we will have a close election, probably with an advantage for the Secretary of State going into the second debate. And to be fearless in my predictions, I sir, I may have equivocated in my answers to your questions about a Trump administration. But my best guess as an analyst is we will still have a presidency of Secretary Hillary Clinton.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much for that. I should add that uh, uh, Politics and is selling uh, uh, the book, Putin's Master Plan, uh, outside for 25 uh, uh, 50 And I have a, a slightly positive review lying outside uh, that I just uh, just published, <laughs> also. Thank you very Thank much. You uh, very much uh, <clears throat> Thank you very much, Anders.
1: Thank <throat> you.